Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rocher, the chef in a hat. And I am so happy to be out of COVID hell. I can tell you that. I'm just my first day back uh, with uh, Welcome back. my 10 days in quarantine. Super exciting. I got my garage floor uh, fixed, but that's about all I got done. Made some <laughs> meatballs. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. Uh, we, uh, we are joined here in the studio at the beautiful... Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. We are joined by Chef in the Chapeau, Mr. That's Terry right. Rotaro. That is correct. I'm Mr. wearing my Douglas. mask today because I'm, while I'm negative, you know I, don't, what? I don't want to I'll join you. chances with you. No, I understand. It's okay. You look good. You look like you're rested and <laughs> you know, get a haircut <laughs> and all that. Nice, nice hair today. I got my haircut before I went to Arizona, I know, which is I remember, where I got I COVID. My friends, uh, my friends just came back from the Ukraine slash Romanian border. Helping refugees for a couple of weeks, and they brought a present to me when they came back. So <laughs> that's very kind of them, I thought. I sent them a big check, and this is what I get in return. <laughs> hey, you can't always get what you want. That's the name of the song. Too. Yeah, exactly. We but have if a big you try show. sometime, you get what you need. Yes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's our producer, Pamela, jumping right in on the tunes. Uh, we have a large show today, two hours. We hope you stay for the whole time. If not, you can podcast this whenever you choose. That's a, always a fun thing to do. Uh, we have a lot of tasty subjects, including fresh ahi. I used to ask cooks when they came and applied for work with me, what would you make for dinner um, You know, if you're going on a date and you wanted to have a very special night? and Whenever they said uh, raw tuna or ahi steaks, I used to just say, okay, you're not for me, because there's nothing to do with ahi other than eat it raw. So. Especially if you get a, you just have to make sure you get a nice piece of tuna. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that and how not to screw it up when you do spend, uh, what, $50 a pound for ahi. Peak of the season, fava beans, are they worth the trouble? I think there's a couple of opinions Absolutely. About you love them? I love them. I like them. Uh, we'll go into that. Kara Martin is here, program director of the Food Innovation Network and Spice Bridge. Joins us in the studio. An update on the Culinary Academy, the Seattle Central Culinary Academy. Such sad news last week, Terry. Yeah, and such better news this week, so it's good. Such better? Did you hear? You'll, you'll, you'll see. Listen okay. up. I hope so. Um, we have certainly utilized uh, students from that program for many years, and also we used to have a scholarship fund. Right. When early in my uh, restaurant career, uh, we used to give money for a scholarship there. We should probably start that again now that we have money again. Uh, the Spunky Lift from Tamarind. Do you love that sour flavor of Tamarind? Yes. I do. Goes good on anything. And lastly, it's Mother's Day. We're going to have a Mother's Day edition of Rub With Love Tasty Trivia. The whole mom and Tom thing, is that's very exciting. That's on Sunday morning here, right? Oh, boy. The guests are enthusiastic. And are we still having our parade of hats? They've been invited to wear hats. And? I don't know how many are what's going our, to. What's our winning hat get when they do? If they a go beautiful to... KitchenAid blender. Oh, well, oh, wow. there you go. See, it's worth, that, worth it. I'm coming. Okay, I always wear a hat. So. Worth wearing a hat. Okay, let's you talk about our, our taste of the week, chef. My, my taste of the week is not a taste. It's a reminder for people to give blood. Um, you, you love know. the taste of blood? Yes. Well, actually, I do, but that's, a, that's another side sick note. <clears throat> Maybe uh, you should have gone to Romania. You sound like Dracula. Yeah, well... Maybe, but uh, no. I just want to remind people there's a coalition of restaurants and hospitality industry people who we all got together mm-hmm. and tried to make some noise about giving blood because two months ago they were, we were down to one-day supply of blood at Bloodworks. And 
That's pretty tragic. I think during COVID, people get, you know, obviously couldn't give blood and go to those places. So it's time to redo. And there's a campaign that was trying to do a three-month period of renewed or new donors to reach a 10,000 um, number. Right now, we're at a month and a half, and we're at 7,100. Hey. So it's looking good, but we need another 3,000 people to sign. Or oh, more. I mean, if give more. It's fine. <laughs> it's not going to go bad. So... Um, I, I want to encourage everybody to go to Bloodworks and schedule a, an hour to go there. And it, those folks are super nice. And uh, it's a great experience. It's also one pint of blood saves a life. So um, it's very easy to give a pint of blood. It's painless, as they say. And it saves a life. So that's my taste of the week is please go donate blood. Is there a snack? There are snacks, but I'm not in charge of that. Otherwise, it would be, you know. A little foie on toast. Okay, quick, quick side note to that. I talked to my mom about that campaign we're doing. I don't know why that came to conversation, but so she's in France, right? And in France, I donate blood when I was younger because in France, you donate blood. In my town, you donate blood once every three months. And you go to this place, and they have a French buffet. But I'm not talking a joke. Like, here we give snacks. And I told them at Blood Work, I'm like, you should put me in charge of this. It would be... You know, a bit more consistent. I mean, you might snack, have a line out know, the door. I just gave a pint of blood. You give me a cracker. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> I want a nice sandwich, you know, with jambon and beurre and all those good things that you're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I want some, you know, leg of lamb roasted, sliced, and you know, I mean, I mean, yes. Perfect. You know, well, you need well, to. Well, chef, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you want all that stuff. I'm curious <laughs> um, if you're going to get it. Well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But go to bloodworks.org and, um, you know, donate and schedule yourself for a donation and, and call your friends. It's a great party to do, you know, to do it together, and it feels good. So, My taste of the week is my sensory development uh, when I got COVID. You know, you always hear about COVID, and people get uh, lose their sense of taste and smell. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I did, but I always do that. When, and I, COVID for me was like a little cold, right? right. So, but whenever I get a cold, all my life, I've lost my sense of taste and smell. So, I, of course, I did this time, but it made me extra aware of the sensory things that did break through. Oh. Right? Some of it break through. Okay. Well, some of the most basic things break Coffee? through. Salt. No, 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 not a flavor, but a sensory, like, salt. Sweet broke through. Oh, Yeah. Like just, you could just tell when you're eating something sweet, even though you couldn't taste it per se, like right. what it was. Right. Chilies, like heat spicy. broke through, spicy broke through, which is, you just crave the things that you get a little sense of, right? right. No, of course. And sour. Of course. I hate like sour gummies or sour, you know, all that kind of crappy candy, but I could actually tell that I had something in my mouth. Wow. Which was kind of cool. I mean, it yeah, was cool. My, my loss of taste and smell was only like three or four days, but still... It's funny what popped. I really craved a bag of potato chips because they're salty, right? right? Crunchy and salty. Right. Even though you couldn't taste the thing. That's interesting. This body has not missed too many bags of potato chips when there's a craving around. It's funny because when I'm sick, I eat the same way than when I'm not. I, if I don't eat a meal, if I skip a meal, it's because there is like, got to be like something really drastic going on. Uh-huh. It's very rare. I mean, even with, you know, I'm sick, I have a fever. It doesn't happen very often, but when I do... Kathy is always amazed. She goes, you're still eating. And I go, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's noon. What are you going to do? I mean, it's time to eat. Exactly. You know, you don't eat as, you know, the same thing. You eat something lighter, obviously. Uh-huh. But, but I'm still eating. 
Well, that's the beginning of our show. Again, we are here two hours every Saturday and Sunday. Up next, fava beans. Are they fun and delicious? Are they a pain in the butt? Right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the debate on fava beans right here in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. We're in downtown Seattle at the Hotel Under, 4th and Virginia, right upstairs from Lola Restaurant across the street from Dahlia Bakery. And in case you're so inclined on Friday morning from 9 to 11, you can watch us on YouTube live. We have our own YouTube channel. Go to Tom Douglas and Company and click on Hot Stove Society Radio Show. All right. That's Friday mornings, 9 to 11. Fava beans. Now, we just were shocked in the off in the off moments off uh, off the live air that our producer who loves a rainbow plate like nobody's business of vegetables every color everything every way every whatever hates fava beans i want to know why and first I, of we all, are Pam, sitting, we were both sitting here looking at her like are you just trying to kid us are you joshing us right now or what the heck why do you hate fava beans what is there to hate they remind me of eating a brown paper bag you know, last time I had a Text- brown paper bag, I thought of fava beans too. <laughs> Texturally and flavor. And I, one time, somebody grilled them on the barbecue in the whole pod. And it had, was that you? Yeah. Massive olive oil and flake mm-hmm. salt. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. But it was olive oil. Well, so, on those, when you do them like that, you blanch them first. You just take the whole fava pods, you blanch them first. And that's, you don't even take the beans out of the pod. That's right. the whole pod. And, um, yeah, and you blanch them so that everything is cooked. And then you char them on the That grill. is so like Tom to do something like this because, exactly. you know what, Tom probably hates. So the, the, the fava My bean. My fingers are too big. The fava bean, exactly. <laughs> the fava bean is a big pod. And inside is a bean that's got a skin on it that you cannot eat. So you have well, to you take can eat it, turns out, if it's cooked. Yeah. Let's just say that most people don't like the texture of that. So we peel it. So in order to peel it, it needs little fingers. And I get, I get the point that you don't want to peel it. So, but it's great to give the job to the people who are eating it. Because you're blanching them whole, and then you're grilling them after they're dry. Well, you, eat, you can eat the pod, too, if it's No, no, cooked. of course you can. Yeah. <clears throat> but my point is, it's great to give the job to the consumer... The person who's going to eat it to peel those damn things if they want to or not, uh-huh. as opposed to you having to do it before they get there. That's a great idea. I don't, I don't get it, Chef. So you're telling them, invite people to your house, have them peel their own fava beans yeah. for their own fava yes. salad. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, okay. You know, I did that once. It's one of those jobs that, yes, you invite your friend earlier with a bottle of champagne, and you, while they're sipping champagne, they're peeling the fava beans. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm a good party 100%. trick. It's a good party trick. I invited Charlie Billow to my house. He's, you've seen his trucks all over Seattle, all over the Northwest. It's called Charlie's Produce, right? Yeah. And, and uh, he and I have been friends for 30-plus years, and you too, I yeah. know. And um, so I invited Charlie Billow to the farm for my annual cook-along. And I thought, what job can I give Charlie uh, that would, <laughs> that punish would him. really... Not to punish him, but to really let him know what it's like when we buy produce from him. So... I gave Charlie the job of shucking the fava beans. And to this day, 10 years later, he is still mad at me. Uh, what a horrific job that was and why he gets stuck with that job and blah, 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 blah. I said, well, you sell them to me. That's why exactly. you got stuck with the job. Exactly. So, okay, let's shuck our favas more, more traditionally. We, you take the fava pod raw. 
You break it open. You right. pull out those little beans right. that are inside. You take those and you pop them in the boiling water for 30 seconds. No more. No more, because we're not trying to cook the bean inside that pod. We're just trying to pop the skin. Yeah, so once that skin is blanched really quickly, 15, 30 seconds, yep. now you pop the skin and you've got this beautiful bright green bean that, according to Pamela, tastes like a brown paper bag. I disagree with her. So wait, I, I, can I say a side yes. note to that? The only reason this can be is because you have an older, starchy, fava bean, end of season, not point. the young, tender, fresh. Mm-hmm. There's no way in the world you find a paper bag in a young, fresh fava bean. <laughs> <laughs> That's not there. Okay, so now you've got the little bean itself, the green little bean. So if you're looking at it, what a percentage yield is on the mm-hmm. pod, you are looking at 10% of the weight of the pod is Correct. now what you have left over to start building with. What's the first thing you would do if somebody handed you... A quart of freshly shucked baby I'll fava. I'll give them a kiss if they're shucked you. already. <laughs> a quart of freshly shucked baby fava. Even a pint. A pint is a lot. The first thing I would think about is usually fava beans is this time of the year. And I don't get that. Why? It's, it seems early. It is very early. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the earliest beans that comes at the middle of spring. Yep. It's Maybe. already in the farmer's oh, market. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely out. Huh. And, and one of the favorite things to do with uh, fava beans is two things. One is morel that comes to mind. Like, like you would peas. Yeah, you would like peas, English, exactly. English peas, morel, yeah. bacon, and fava beans, or uh, fava beans and spring lamb. Those are two things that lamb and fava beans, ooh, mamma mia, that's delicious. Another thing that goes really well with fava beans is truffles. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, end of, end of uh, winter truffle. With fava beans, oh, so delicious. So delicious. So good. I'm trying to think of what really doesn't go well with truffles. Uh, or doesn't go well, yeah, or doesn't go well with fava beans, that doesn't matter. You so, know, young, young tender carrots, spring carrots with fava beans. Uh-huh. It's just like peas. Think of peas. I mean, yeah, so you just got to saute them in butter, olive oil, lemon zest, blah, 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 yeah. be done. My favorite thing to do, if somebody were to hand me pre-shucked, beautiful baby favas, I would never do this if I had to do it myself. But I would take those and I would blend them with olive oil, lemon juice, and mint and make a little fava puree and put it on a little really crisp baguette toast mm. and just maybe top it with a little ricotta salada or a little chev and just would be so delicious. No, I'm with you. But it's, it's hard to puree them <laughs> when you've done all the shucking. Well, actually, it's easier to puree them before you shuck them. You don't need to peel the skin if you're going to puree them. Cook them all the way. Peel the inside skin. Yeah, the inside skin of the, yeah. of the pea. Just cook the whole thing all the way tender and then blend it and then strain it to a fine pass, you know, uh-huh. to a fine uh, uh, tummy or something like yeah. that. So that's, that's how you get around that, not having to peel it for that when you make puree because peeling those things and make puree out of it. I know, it's hard. I have a hard time with that yeah, one. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> but... Um, uh, my friend Peter Dow used to have the restaurant Cafe Juanita, uh-huh. which is now Holly Smith's restaurant sure. over there. But years ago, uh, he used to make dried bean, dried fava bean, kind of reconstituted into like a, almost like a... Uh, is Ribolita thing? No, That's like a hummus, but out of a hummus oh, out yeah, of, like a hummus. of dried fava, fava hummus, beans. Good yeah, idea. And it was it a, makes a great lot hummus. of garlic, yeah. and, and it's a good way to use the dried but fresh, hummus. it's re- like you just said, like a puree, it's really delicious. It makes a great hummus. Yeah. Put a little chopped garlic in there, or even some black garlic if you can find some. That's nice and sweet, and, you know, it's got fermented. 
So it's really delicious. Um, it also goes really well with yogurt as a spread. Uh-huh. You take a little bit of yogurt and put it in your fava beans, a little zest of lemon, and use that as a with smoked salmon. Oh, so good. So delicious. So good. Um, you know, it's the, uh, it's the time of a year where we have to talk about funding for our local schools. The fate of this, uh, the culinary program at Seattle Central is on the table right now. And we're going to chime in on it when we come back on Cairo Radio, the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. That's Chef Terry in the chapeau leading the applause. That's right. The audience motivator. Linda Chauncey is here. Uh, you know, it was tragic... Sad news when we heard last week or almost two weeks ago now that uh, the funding for the Seattle Central Culinary Program uh, was going to be taken away and they were going to stop the program. And it's just one of the many tragedies in that particular area Art Institute of Seattle, uh, a bunch of different places, South the Seattle. Port on Blue. Port on Blue. Yeah. yeah. A bunch of these places uh, have lost their funding. And so this was like another shot over the bow. But this is, I want to do a side note, this is a public school. I want to make sure that this is clear. This is a public school versus a private school. Yes, it is a public school. And it's also, uh, in my opinion, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest. I, I chose not to go to college myself. I'm not the biggest believer that everyone needs a college education. Lots of people need trade educations. Correct. And I, I really believe that. You know, we need all these I did exactly services. the same route. So. Yeah. so anyway, so Linda's here. She used to run this place. Just 10 years, Tom. How did, you get to, how did you get back in the middle of this mix? Well, you know what? I was kind of recruited. And, and, um, but if they hadn't recruited me, I would have raised both hands. Uh-huh. You know, I left in 2013 after 10 years. and um, Coming from St. Michelle before that, right? Yes, exactly. And, yeah. then, and then, Tom, I went back to St. Michelle for another four years before retiring. But here's the thing. I've always said the most rewarding work I will have ever done was that as being a dean of the Seattle Culinary Academy. Mm -hmm. Um, You fall in love with the students, the students' stories. Um, You know, I mean, we had students that decided they wanted to follow their passion and leave practicing law to get into culinary arts. And then we had students who were living in their cars. And um, when they both found their way, um, that's pretty rewarding. You know, the student that lived in his car would come into the locker room, iron... Ironed his chef coat, and the chef coat was a huge equalizer. Uh-huh. They, everybody felt a tremendous sense of belonging. I was so proud of that. I mean, when I say belonging, I don't mean fit in. You know, when you say fit in, what really that means that's struggle. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Trouble. I had to compromise who I was yeah. to be part of this. And and at Seattle Culinary Academy, you just belong. You know, we had a student, Will Yi. When he graduated, he went to work for the celebrated chef, Martin Yan. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows, right? Sure. He, Yan can cook. Yan can cook. And, and so, you know, Will came back. He's now a chef at Lispiga. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a letter to the chancellor, which he shared with me. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I mean, of course, I'm... Emotional. Yeah, I, get I, it. I am. I get a it. European family, first generation. Yeah, we cry a lot. <laughs> um, but the point is, he said, you know, Dean Chauncey, I was, I was in classes with... A pastor, a bartender from the cuff, a Thai heiress, and, and um, tech gurus. Mm-hmm. These are just, I mean, the, the spectrum. We're so proud that 
of the spectrum, the diversity at Seattle Central, and certainly Seattle Culinary Academy is not an exception to that. Uh-huh. And it's that diversity that we're so proud of, that people find community, and most importantly, you know, 97% of our graduates report that they found work they wanted to do in the restaurant slash hospitality um, industry. Uh-huh. 97% that they wanted to do. That's pretty remarkable. And, you know, E.T. knows this. He mentioned it in an interview. E.T.'s my partner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, he said Seattle Culinary Academy is the largest feeder of graduates to Washington State. And, Terry, yeah. you know this. I mean, I think the hospitality yeah, yeah. industry, the restaurant industry, is probably the biggest employer of it graduates, is. Yeah, right? absolutely. The biggest employer. So think about it. It might be the biggest it. employer. It, okay, it you might know, be. You know, I don't know where Amazon falls, so I want yeah, to... Yeah, I understand, but, but still. Yeah, yeah the, exactly. The services, you know, they look at every cafeteria in a hospital, colleges. I mean, the food service industry is a huge employer. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I, I believe we're the second one to the army. To the army or the auto industry is what I had always heard. So yeah. anyway, so where do we stand? What can we do? Chef Terry and I have uh, benefited from oh, these hey, smart students. Give us a little background. What's the story? The, okay. the program? Okay, yeah, Terry, I, I appreciate that. Um, after much pot clanging, as Julia Child would say, ladies with ladles and, and men's with pots, pots and pans, and, and, and a hue and cry from um, our our legislators, uh-huh. as well as the restaurant community, and lots of graduates, right? On May 4th, the chancellor wrote a letter, and the letter said that we will not drop any of the prof tech programs that were on the block. And those were in addition to the Seattle Culinary Academy. Um, it was wood construction, um, maritime academy, as well as apparel design. Mm-hmm. And all of those, as you would understand, have partnerships with the community. Yeah. So all of us have been saved. However, here's the most important piece. We only have a guarantee through fall quarter of this year. Mm-hmm. Winter quarter and spring are, are up in the air. And, um, and, and that's, that's tough, even though you know, we're thrilled that we've been given this one you know, reprieve, right? Um, you think about it from a student's point of view. Should I enroll there? Will they close? Right. You're almost setting yourself up to fail. Right. Yeah. Yes, Tom. And, and I think part of it is the school has every intention of doing what they call teach-outs. You know, if we enroll you, we're going to finish you. Uh-huh. So I love that commitment that they have to the student, and that's not a surprise coming from Seattle Central. Um, but, but you ask, what is it that we can do? And I had a chance to talk to Pamela about this a little bit, but... Um, where we're coming from right now is we feel strongly that we need a new funding model. And that's, that's obvious, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd like to put the uh, cost of Seattle Culinary Academy in perspective. You know we have two programs, right? Culinary Arts, Specialty Desserts and Breads. So Culinary Arts, if you want to get a degree, it's a five-quarter program, and it costs you roughly $11,000. Mm-hmm. Let's put that in perspective. And I'm going to put it in perspective with those culinary schools that are considered the gold standard. Right. Johnson and Wales. How much more do you think that is? Well, that's a four-year program, too, right? Isn't that an that, MBA that, That's right. That's right. You can get a BA. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that's, that's 44000 Right. Uh, how about the gold standard, the Culinary Institute of America, CIA? Oh, I can't even imagine what that I, I It's six times, uh-huh. you know. But, you know, and I, what I'm saying is, so if we close the Seattle Culinary Academy, what are your options? 
to go to Johnson Wales for a four-year degree, uh-huh. yeah. or, or, or you know, to the Culinary Institute at 68000 let's, let's remember a lot of those students are already getting you know, help from the state or from it, Washington because they can't even afford to go to, you know, to, go to, to, those, to those schools. So it would be, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Grant, Seattle Promise. And, you know, you might have English as a second language, and, and, and Seattle Central, to your point, Terry, um, provides all kinds of support systems to, to make sure you get through. Right. You know, so it, it's a different kind of, and, so, and it's also first come, first serve. That's another thing. There's not like some, we have a panel of people who will assess your LSAT. And, um, you know, so, so it's first come, first serve. Right. That's pretty ethical. Yeah. I think, uh, so right now the funds are coming from the states. And is there any from federal well, as well? Well, and there's also, there are grants and, and there's the Seattle Promise. So students are getting, remember the Seattle Promise. And, and those monies were generated by a city levy mm-hmm. for education as well as public-private partnerships. So, so that's how that's done. But, you know, I think, I think the reality is, here's the reality. Professional technical programs are just more expensive, period. Right. right? They're equipment-intensive. The equipment breaks and it needs to be repaired. And then to make sure that our students have the skills that they need when they get into industry, there must be a low student to faculty ratio. Mm-hmm. So none of these classes with 150 students and one faculty member, no, you know, the, the ratio is much, much smaller. So we can assure that they're getting the, the, the skills they need. Right. So they're, by their nature, they're more expensive. Mm-hmm. There should have always been a different funding model. You know, and, and I, I think the question that we have is, what are those best funding models? And, and that's what we, um, team at Seattle Central, chef uh, instructors, the dean that's there now, that's the next research that we need to do, is to find out what are the models that we could potentially use. Because, you know, in 2005, the Seattle Culinary Academy, which, by the way, it's been open since 1941, right? Right. I mean, we had a major renovation in, in 2005, and over 100 people came in to donate, and we were able... To I think f- we were one of them, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you were. <laughs> yes, Tom, and, and it was huge. In fact, those are some of the people that now, when they heard it was going to close after this beautiful renovation, they go, what? Wait a minute. So they're still ch- donating monies. But the question is this. I don't think that's a sustainable model to keep going back to people and going, could you please? Well, I don't... Uh- yeah, we have associations in our industry, Washington Restaurant Association, lots of things. But maybe when we come back, let's talk about that for a minute and talk about successful funding models. Because I understand that there are some already at the college through other trade organizations that uh, that we might consider for the culinary side of things. Sounds good. So do you mind staying with us for another Oh, second? I'm here. All right. Good. That's coming up when we come back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're discussing the fate of the Seattle Central Community College culinary program right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Our guest is Linda Chauncey, tenure dean up until 2013, you said, I think. Right, 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 right. Uh, of this particular school at uh, Seattle Central. Lots of drama going on right now with all the different um, uh, funding possibilities. How is it that they're out of money all of a sudden at the school? Yeah. From what I read, yeah. Yeah. this is the highest, or it, it's a full... Fully 
engaged, fully enrolled program. So is the funding model that they have wrong, that they can't afford to do what? I mean, it'd be one thing if they were only at 50%. In yes. Enrollment, but they're at 100 percent. Right. So, is their funding? Their what they're charging is wrong. Well, let, I can tell you what what happened. Here's what happened, and really, the Seattle Culinary Academy got into the eye of a perfect storm, and both these things were triggered by COVID. So, number one, Seattle Central, one of their hallmark programs, is their international program. Uh-huh. And international students, as you would understand, just like out-of-state students, pay much more for tuition than local students. And so we always, because of the success of that program, had monetary reserves. And so where there were shortfalls, we were able to mm-hmm. go ahead, yep, fill the gap, right? So that's one thing. With COVID, the international programs, enrollment plummeted. Now, some of that was political. Most of it was COVID. Mm-hmm. There's another thing that happened. When COVID hit, all the lecture classes went virtual. There's one exception, however, the prof tech programs. Uh-huh. Can't learn that without. No. Right. But so, so our students, historically, we've been able to generate revenues through two restaurants and a wonderful pastry and espresso bar. So all the food produced by the students would go down to those areas and the student body would buy them. And we were able to, again, recoup costs and generate profit. Well, there was no foot traffic. No. Huh? Yeah. So, so what happened, potentially, maybe a funding model that worked historically was hit by these factors, right? I think that's, that's really kind of what happened. But the thing is, it's, it's sort of like, um, what do we do now mm-hmm. to create that more sustainable model for the culinary academy to address its unique costs mm-hmm. how can we what can we do so how can we get them a basis yeah uh so that the money raised in the restaurants and the coffee bar and stuff is really cream on the top because it's not that's just like you said that's not a reliable yeah. model for a culinary education yeah and terry you and i both know that um we can come in and we can bring a baker in and teach them how to make brownies and you know whatever but right. they don't know the science behind it and that's one of the things that you get at a community college program right. like this is you get the the science behind why something raises and you know not just not just word of mouth kind of With, training how to make a brownie right the so. price of labor in the restaurant industry is growing fast 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 yes and there is no I think most people can't afford to have somebody walking into a restaurant kitchen and not know that you need a bleach bucket, then you need, you know, all the different basics that you teach at a culinary program. Yes. Those items are super important for us in the restaurant industry because you don't hire somebody who has never been in a kitchen. You hire yes. somebody who at least knows and when they walk in the kitchen, there is a few basics to cover. Yeah. That's what we need in the restaurant. All the health, oh. health safety codes, exactly. everything. Yeah, yeah. it's huge. Well, and I love the fact that two legends are saying this because, quite frankly, so many people say, eh, we don't need a culinary school. They can just go to the restaurant and they can learn it there. Restaurants move so fast. You need people who know what they're doing. Well, that was so good that- when people were working for free. You could oh. train somebody for five years for free. Oh, I love that, Terry. But you that, can't do it. That's never been my kitchen chef. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I know you're yeah, going to say right. I did that. I did not do that. But that's my point is, again, it's all financial. There is so much aggravation in terms of financial in the restaurant business or in the industry, yeah. Yeah. the hospitality industry nowadays, 
so much more cost, so much more caring towards the individual, which is all good. But somebody has to pay for that. And as the owner of a, of a business, you can't afford to have somebody who walks in and doesn't know the difference between a walk-in refrigerator and a freezer. <laughs> I would say as the owner of a business also, Chef, you can't afford to not participate in this culinary education. Actually, I exactly. think that's where I'd like, like, like to get at a little bit before we run out of time again, which is, what's our way forward? You're a former dean, 10 years. Uh, yeah. what's, what do you think is a reasonable payment model for the industry? Yeah. You know, we have a restaurant association out of the state, out of Olympia. We have yeah. a local restaurant yeah. group in that group. Um, what's a reasonable thing for restaurants and hospitals and universities and all these people that need these graduates. Yeah. How do we help fund this situation? Tom, I, I, I love that question. And I think if there was a simple answer, we would have found it a long time ago. But I think, I think the, the thing is, you know, um, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, a catastrophe is incredibly liberating. It, right. <laughs> I mean, it is because now we're just going to, we have to go do something. We really have to fix this. And so on Monday morning, there are a group of us, a small group of us, who are going to convene and discuss what potential funding models we need to research and develop to make the program sustainable so that there are monies in perpetuity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's what, but I don't, ha- I don't have an answer sitting here, Chef. I think, I think that uh, just like the Washington Restaurant Hospitality charges and, you know, dues and everything, there might be a way for people to use who use the program to participate at least at the base, you know, in donation, like be a member of of it this group. To, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but it has to be an assessed number, or yeah. else this year they give, next year they don't. No, no, you know, no, no. Like, Agreed. It's, it's got to be, be part an assessed of a, number, of yeah, yeah. like a yeah. property tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know I lost a lot of cooks to Google and to Facebook and to Microsoft and to Amazon that are all these high-tech companies that you don't think of as restaurant companies, but they all have corporate cafeterias and they all they have health benefits. I mean, it's a good job. Yeah. Um, we should all, as an industry, figure out how to create a, a pool of applicants for our businesses that um, that is sustainable. I love this conversation because I think it... I think if you look at, the, at, at this situation from the balcony level, that 30,000-foot perspective, it begs the question, what is America's sentiment about professional technical programs and workforce programs? What is our attitude and spirit? I think, you know, I think we most of the time try not to look at it or not to talk about it. We talk about the guy who makes $250,000 a year, but we never talk about the guy who makes thirty-five. Yeah, And unfortunately... For everybody to know and to remember, you cannot leave at 250 if you don't have somebody working at 50. So perfect. It's, it's a perfect. It. It's a perfect and form kind of idea where yeah. everybody has a job and everybody needs to. Yes. You know, the more educated the people are and the more trained the people are, the better they will be in the workforce. Yeah. Well, it begs the question: when we had COVID and we couldn't go to our favorite restaurants, where it's yes, it's about beautiful food that tastes good, smells good, but wow. Did we miss our community? Mm-hmm. And I did that maybe spike an awareness that will help foster support for a movement to do just what you're both saying. I hope so. Well, I hope so too. I mean, I I certainly see many people still in our industry, and it's not like we're we have no employees. Right. We have a bunch of our own. We have you, see, you walk into any fast food joint, you see lots of employees. Again, everybody. Mm-hmm. A grocery store these days is basically. 
a center aisle with a restaurant around the outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> true. Our cooks are everywhere. Right. So uh, I just think we need to Thank find you. a way to um, consistently train them and to not forget the science and the, uh, the health regulations and all the things that go along with a culinary education. So it's a, it's a joy to have you here. I haven't seen you in so long. I'm, I'm sorry it's not under better circumstances, but... Oh, yeah. Whatever. I know Bridget Charters is watching. She's one of our chef instructors here and yes. former educator at the Art Institute and, and very she, pa- passionate about this. We, we yeah, all she's have, been part of our campaign. Uh-huh. We all have been benefactor of the Seattle Central um, College Culinary Academy over the years. So it's a no-brainer to know that, yes, we depend on places like that. So we need Thank to you. keep them alive. All Thank right. We've got another full hour of our show to come. We're not usually so – we're usually an upbeat well, this is a bit. This, this is very yeah. serious. This yeah. is a bit, and yes, we're very excited. <laughs> in hour two, Kara Martin is going to join us from the Food Innovation Network, along with uh, we're going to talk about ahi tuna, how not to mess that up because it's so darn expensive, and um, Rob with Love Tasty Trivia, mm. all centered around mom. Oh, love mom. Or god moms. <laughs> On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Stay with us. All right, we're back in the hot stove kitchen. Thanks for hanging during that break. We appreciate it. Uh, I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And we're coming to you, as always, here from the Hot Stove Society kitchens in downtown Seattle, the Hotel Andra, 4th in Virginia. Thank you for joining us live or on a podcast. Yeah, well, on YouTube channel. And Terry, we forgot something on the last segment, so you might yes, want to... Yes, we uh, to finish there. the conversation with the Seattle Culinary Academy um, there is a place you can go to donate, and that is Save the Seattle Culinary Academy. If you feel so inclined as uh, helping a public school in Seattle, public colleges, please do so. All right, and if you've ever dreamed about opening your own food business, the, uh, we're, this uh, hour we have two segments with the Food Innovation Network, uh, both in the uh, how that came to be and in some of the businesses that they have helped fund. And I think there's a few of the taste right in front of us if I'm not mistaken. Uh, also, in the second hour, we're going to talk about ahi tuna, how to, how to cook it without messing it up. And we're going to finalize our afternoon or morning with uh, the Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. And Pamela has uh, said in her notes that um, it's going to focus on mom this week. And I know I'm uh, having a big mom and Tom brunch here at the hot stove on Sunday morning. Looking forward to that. Followed by a dinner at my house. Um, we had to cancel Easter so we ah, moved. Yeah. We moved it to my. I've had a ham sitting in my fridge. It's aging beautifully uh, for mom's dinner on Sunday night. Well, I'm glad I'm staying at my house. <laughs> just it's smoked. It's beautiful. <laughs> a hempler ham. All right, let's uh, jump right into our first segment here. Karen Martin is here from the Food Innovation Network. Uh, let's jump into that and find out how did that get started. That's so cool. It sounds like an interesting innovative. story. Innovative. Yeah. yeah. Trying to innovate. Yeah. But also trying to help small small producers, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Food Innovation Network um, is a program of the nonprofit Global to Local, and we're based in South King County, so um, the SeaTac Tequila area, kind of near the airport. Um, the work started oh around ten years ago. There was a lot of different kind of community food based projects going on. Um, Global to Local had brought on um, a 
An amazing woman, Jambi Gashuru. She's um, a Kenyan um, immigrant. She's been in the States for quite a few decades. She had a storefront in Pike Place um, back in the 80s. Um, and she um, was hired on to talk to the people in the community to get an understanding of what are the barriers they face to, to li- live healthy lives. And not surprisingly, people are like, if I had more money in my pocket, you know, <laughs> then I could <laughs> live a healthy life. And then she pushed even further, like, well, what does that look like to you? And over and over, she kept hearing of folks like, well, if I, I like, I, I cook chapati for my community and sell, or I, I cook up, you know, all these different, like, dishes that, like, have a lot of, um, are really key to their cultural communities. Um, but they couldn't, they were doing it out of their apartment kitchens, right? Like, they can't mm-hmm. get to that next step. And so that's when we realized, you know, there's something here. Like, you're talking to dozens and dozens of people that want to start food businesses or basically are under the table, but they can't move forward. Um, and then we started looking at, you know, there's no commissary kitchens really at all in South King County. It's really hard to just, like, secure a lease on a space and then navigate the public health mm-hmm. <laughs> right. system. And so that's how we came together was to look at forming um, a food business incubator to support um, immigrant and refugee um, communities that are have a lot of skill and talent and experience, but just have a hard time getting started. Exactly. And even if you wanted to use your own kitchen, I think there's some laws, like if under a certain dollar amount, you can use your home kitchen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a whole layers of laws and like how your family life cannot mix with Right. What you're selling, and then it's almost impossible. They don't make it. They don't make it simple and easy. First, and they probably shouldn't. I mean, they're no. trying to yeah. keep the public yeah. safe. Yeah. And, no, of yeah. course, of yeah. course. Um, and we understand all that. Um, so, but so then how does it differ from, say, the international groups like the Heifer Project, for example, where uh, my mother sends me a heifer gift every yeah. year I for my Christmas that present? My yeah, too, yep. you know, so if you give somebody a goat, uh-huh. uh, they can make a business out of you know that, or they can get milk for their family. Or, it yeah. sounds similar, but just on a little more direct basis to so, food. Yeah, so we look, what are their barriers? Their barriers are, one, understanding the systems, like the permitting and licensing, getting into a physical space, mm-hmm. and then connecting with customers that are outside of their community. So our program is designed around that business development, so helping them get permitted, insured, getting them banked, set, like separating your business from your your. <laughs> your household income. Um, So getting banked, we work with some really great um, partner organizations that already have a lot of that curriculum and business coaching, but then we pair up the kind of the more food specific food industry services along. So we now have a space that they um, pay a subsidized rent and are in a commercial kitchen um, and getting to get into a walk-in right, right. <laughs> versus... I mean, I, I think yeah. that's very, very important to have the brick-and-mortar area already taking care of. All you have to do is pay a little... It's like having a restaurant or, or a kitchen, but it's nice to have a, a place where it's affordable and somebody else is doing the legwork for you. Yeah. Because you're right, it is definitely a giant... I mean, I came to this country not even speaking English, and I learned a lot of things. You know, I don't... I think about it when I look back. I don't think about it on a daily basis, but... You know, there's a lot of things you have to learn to be in business for yourself, and it's a constant learning curve. So it's nice if somebody else is actually taking care of that part for you, so you can f- focus on what you actually want to do, which is the cooking part or the, you know, the the, the yeah the the cooking part. Yeah, and then uh, and start to like understand if if that's the right fit for you before you're like 
you know, invest your entire savings into right. trying to, I think to, that's like, huge right there. Is this the right fit for yeah. you personally and, the, right. and your family and where you want to go as a, as a human? Yeah. Because I mean, once you get tied down to a business like that, you're, you have commitments. Yeah. 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 You don't have the commitment of the least. You don't have the commitment of all those different ingredients. So it's very much, it's less heavier on the shoulder. And it's, you know, it's after two years of being in the restaurant business, you'll know if you want to keep going or not. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing some businesses saying, this is not the right fit for me. But we had um, a recent business that realized it's not the right fit, but I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a business owner. Like she realized that. So we see that as a success. Like she's empowered and she knows what she wants. Uh-huh. She doesn't want to make pants every day. Right. Like that was what she, she loves cooking, <laughs> but she doesn't want to do that every day. But well, she knows what she wants to do. It's so much better important. to realize that without being involved on a 10 year lease and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. you know, a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Or, or yeah. like if you look at my business, my rub with love business, uh, you know, just the inventory I have to have and the building space, right? My mm-hmm. building space is 6,500 square feet. The inventory I have to have in jars, lids, labels, spices. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, promotional material, all that kind of stuff is well over $100,000, maybe two hundred. right? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't actually know off the top of my head. And, and the, another 150 to 200 in made stock so that it's ready to go when somebody orders it, right? Right, so, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, it can get to be a, a yep. headache. Yep. Uh, and also like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, it's like, okay, piece after piece. So. Yeah. All right, when we come back, let's talk about some of your success stories. Okay. Including Spice Bridge. Uh, when we come back on the Cairo Radio Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And now we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. <laughs> Chef Jerry leading the, leading the charge when it comes to audience participation. Some people are ignoring you today, Chef. Normally they're yeah, no, just I know. They're, on they're top talking. Of you. It's okay. You know, they're having a good time. That's what we want. We're going to continue our conversation with Kara Martin from the Food Innovation Network. Uh, Kara, we found out about how you got started in that particular situation. And now tell us about the food hall, the global food hall called Spice Bridge. Yeah, Spice Bridge um, is located in Tequila, so about 15 minutes um, south of downtown Seattle, close to the airport. Um, we're open six days a week, so closed on Mondays. And you come in, and we're a small food hall. There's up to four kiosks set up, and it's, it's the businesses that are in our um, food business incubator. So you, you can buy food from them and really try food from all around the world. Um, and we have a rotating schedule, so every day is a little bit different. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's um, So fun. is it in like a strip mall? Do you just drive up? Is it like a... Yeah, um, I'm not sure what it is, honestly. Yeah, it's a, it's a, we're in the bottom of a, um, we're on the, the ground floor of a apartment building. Uh-huh. Um, it's a new area, um, a new development called Tequila Village. So there's the Tequila Library there um, and some housing and other, um, you know, commercial um, businesses coming into to the area. So. And if I were to drive there for lunch this Friday afternoon, Ooh. what am I having to eat? Um, and, wh- well, and how does it relate to yes. the Food Innovation Network? Um, so this is where this is the the starting ground for those businesses. Uh-huh. Where there we have a commissary kitchen, where so we can have up to four to five businesses that are cooking in the kitchen, um, and then that's the, you know the back of the house, and then the front of the house is set up kind of like a food court or food hall. You walk up to a kiosk counter, and you would purchase food directly from that business. So mm. so it's like of, their own little brick and mortar. It is, but you could also buy it to go. 
Like you, yeah, like, yeah okay. and, and frankly, we opened it in September 2020. Uh-huh. So <laughs> <laughs> nice timing. Uh, yeah, that was um, good. So it was a great pivot. Um, and so it's been mostly takeout. But we now have some indoor dining. We have ample um, outdoor dining as well, but we also have indoor. We've been slowly bringing in some of the um, the indoor dining. So, um, and we want to see more of that. Um, and it's fun to see families come in. And usually, people want to go to more than one kiosk. When you purchase from them, you're purchasing from them and supporting that business. None of those sales go through. Um, our program. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really them building up their business. They're all licensed and insured. Um, they all hold their own public health permit. Like if you were to go today, um, so Fridays we have Jazzy's. Um, she does Afghan food. So she, I would recommend the Ashuk or the Montu dumplings. They're so delicious, especially on a cold day with a little bit of lentils on top mm-hmm. and some um, fresh mint. We also have uh, Terry uh, with Terry Cambo- Cambodian Foods. Um, Everything is delicious there. Um, we just had, um, she does these like lemongrass meatballs and also a stuffed vermicelli uh, chicken that also includes all, uh, lemongrass and ginger and, and garlic. Super delicious. We have some of the chili oil here today from her. Um, and then, oh, it's Friday. This is like every that's, day. That's all right. You don't have yeah. to get so, more. So like that that's gives nice. an example. It's like a, a range yeah. of, and they're all and cooking from scratch. What time are they open till? Um, so we're open 11 to 8. Um, PM. PM, yep. Oh, so, so you, you do, you dinner do lunch too. and dinner. So you can go Tuesday through Saturday, and then Sunday our hours are 10 to 5. Wow. So what did we have? What did you bring for us here? Terry, you've got a little plate of food. Yeah. So I brought a Terry lot of... Terry is a bit of a spice weenie. He loves chili crisp, but outside <laughs> of that... <laughs> yeah. Um, they are hot, <laughs> except for the chili. Um, I don't find that heat hot. Some people do. So that is like a signature, like that's like the Cambodian like signi- five signature where, with the ginger, the garlic, so good. So what's the progression here? You brought these sauces. I'm mm-hmm. assuming they're from these stands that you have yeah, down at Spice yeah. Bridge. But is there a progression for them to maybe get these sauces on the shelf in a grocery yes. store? Yes, yes. Okay. Exactly. And that's like what, that's what this space does where you can test out you want to be a, a food business. What does that mean? Right. Does it mean not everybody wants to be a restaurant? We have some businesses that are more interested in going the packaged food route and doing the sauces. Uh-huh. But the kiosk is allowing them to kind of test Try some of out. this out. Yeah. Um, we have some businesses in our program that are not, they don't have a kiosk and they're doing just catering and farmer's markets. Um, and so they're, they're all kind of testing different things out. So um, quite a few of our businesses have their signature sauces that you can't find anywhere, shelves anywhere, right? You can't uh-huh. find, like, a Senegambian sauce. So I would think it would be really cool if you're, for example, Cambodian and you're fairly new here and you can find this thing that, you know, this is common to every It feels like home for you, yeah. Yeah, every foreigner. And yeah. you go over there and, I, I mean, this tastes really good. They taste, they're very spicy for sure, but they taste like, they taste real like somebody, f- you know, that is from that country. So I think it would be really cool for local it um, is, yeah, for, it's like a great way to like get to understand another culture. Right. Um, but also that, you know, Terry has talked about she's done senior meals for her community and, and she's made dishes where at the end the seniors are like, I haven't had this for 30 plus years since I had to, was forced to leave the country uh-huh. and to like have that taste of home that they really can't go back to. To be able to like have that is like that's just 
really I mean, that's beautiful. the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's super cool. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not very hot on the spice, but the Cambodian... You're not hot on it. You don't like it. Uh-huh. No, I love. I love so the flavor of this. This is really, really delicious. Yeah. She pastes it with a, a mortar and pestle. Oh wow! Yeah. Looks like it's been sliced. It's really delicious. I like it. It's not too hot. I mean, it's it's got a little kick, but <laughs> if you eat that with food, you're not yeah. eating that just by itself. Yeah. And she does a lot of things to like comp with like a coconut cream and other. Yeah. So it like. Balances out. Yeah. So you've been open for two years now. Has anyone kind of graduated? Yeah, into um, their own space. Yeah. So C Tango um, is an Argentinian bakery now in um, Lake City on Lake City Way. Uh-huh. Um, they're doing great. It's like that's been. It's a couple. It's been their dream for decades to have their own bakery, and and now they they have one. So they do pastries and they do these amazing empanadas. <laughs> um, so I highly recommend going there. They're on Lake City Way, um, and um, you know they're that's at Spicebridge. The eight months they were there, they were able to demonstrate to a landlord that their business model and what they could do, and that's how they were able to actually sign a lease. Um, oh, that is a great story. Yeah, um, we also have Nigebuka who um, does Nigerian foods, and she now has packaged food line in all the PCC markets, so you can get her sauces, and she also has some frozen products as well so Uh the businesses like they have ideas of where they want to go we're not doing a cookie cutter program it's working with them to figure out what what's the right fit for you and when they come back to you i mean i'm sure that you have kept up communication yeah yeah what what are are they saying you know this helped me the most (laughs) um well there's things like uh monica with uh cdango is like Oh, all that bookkeeping and financial <laughs> stuff. Like, yeah. oh, that's for real. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that is for real. Um, so it's things like that or, the, like, some of the public health stuff, like, understanding that because it's really challenging to, um, especially if you come from somewhere where they don't have those systems in place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one thing that often passionate entrepreneurs don't understand is there's two parts to the business. There is your job, the passion, the doing, the cooking, and all that. And there's the business part. Yeah. And fortunately, you have to know some of both in order yep. to be successful and to stay alive. Yeah. You know, and it, it, you, cannot, you cannot run a business without knowing some of the business, you know, and, and mm-hmm. to comply. So I think that one of the things I would come back with is um, if I was doing this for the first time, it's like, it's intense. Yeah. It's, you know, you're, you're working when everyone else is having dinner. Right. At your place, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're working nights, you're working weekends, and it, when you own a business, it never goes away. Mm-hmm. You always are thinking about it. And so um, if I were to come back to you and say, I would just appreciate the fact that I knew that going into this business. Mm. Right? I mm-hmm. felt comfortable signing a five-year lease after having done this for eight months at Spice Bridge or mm-hmm. whatever. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Innovation Network and yeah. all the work that you're doing that's Great. We appreciate it. Go visit. Makes our community richer. So we need to go get some food. Go get some food at where, Spice where? Bridge. In Tequila. So on Tequila International Boulevard, right next to the Tequila Library. All right, cool. Here you go. That's Kara Martin. Uh, when you come back, I'm, sh- I'm assuming you're going to come back and listen to the rest of our show. Cool. We're going to talk about ahi tuna. Yes. Uh, why not, huh? Delicious. Oh. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, we're back in the kitchen. It's Tom Douglas and Chef Thierry Rotoro, and we're going to talk about some ahi tuna. Now, um, I do suggest before we even start this conversation, you know, in many areas it is endangered. So 
You have to be careful where you get it, Correct. where it comes from. When you see it in the market, try to figure it out or go to Monterey Bay Aquarium site to see uh, if it's sustainably caught or farmed or, or whatever it is that um, they are saying about uh, right now. There's lots of different kinds of tuna, right? There's bluefin, yellowfin. Yeah. Yellowfin's what they consider the ahi. Correct. Big eye tuna, all sorts of different kinds of tunas in the marketplace. The only tuna I've really caught is more like a skipjack. Oh, yeah. Um, over in Hawaii, um, delicious albacore. Was it a big fight? <laughs> no, no. It wasn't. It was well. I was I, I was on the boat that caught it. I'll oh, okay. You know, they, <laughs> oh, I see. Uh huh. It's one of I'm those fishermen story. If, if I'm not mistaken, I caught this two hundred pound fish. No, no, no. It's only an eight pound, six pound fish skipjack. Uh, I think Loretta was on the on the pole at that time. You know, they rotated between whoever's on right, the boat. Right. Yeah. So I, I did catch a mahi mahi. So, wow. Yeah. Not, huh? That's a beast. Let's talk about ahi tuna, yes. shall we? When you see it in the grocery store or at the fish market, what are you going to do? How are you going to know that fish that's $40, $50 a pound that it's worth buying? What are you going to look for? Well, first of all, I'm going to look if there is anything underneath the fish, as in any liquid. Because that will tell me two things. One, either it's losing its life and it's losing some of its cells, it's broken down. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I will be more careful about, first of all, I'm going to decide before I go... Um, not before I go, after I see the fish, whether I'm going to cook it or have it into raw. Uh-huh. I love a good raw I eat tuna. Who doesn't? You know, if it's done, if it's a beautiful fresh fish and you get it, like I got it when I was in Hawaii in Honolulu, outside of Honolulu towards the airport, there's a fish uh, place where you can go. The fish is daily, you know, daily caught and you get this tuna that is absolutely magical. You know, it's beautiful. It's fresh. You can tell. It's alive. It has no sweating on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely magical, beautiful fish. Now, you eat that raw, it's totally safe, and you know it. Now, eating raw fish, especially tuna, when, when, you're, when you're in Seattle, it has to come from somewhere. It's usually not right here at the door, so you have to make sure that it's not too old. <coughs> go to trust places. I would go, um, personally, as you probably would, I would go to Mutual Fish. That's hairy or... You know, just for some recommendation on a good piece of ai tuna. And a lot of the ai tuna in the market is frozen. You know, comes in frozen because they catch it for the same reason I just said. They catch it. First thing they do is they freeze it because they want to make sure that it stays fresh. Yeah, if you go to the Skiji market in Tokyo, like <laughs> right. almost all the tuna there all the bullets is are all frozen. big yeah. frozen bullets of tuna. Yeah, And I've been to the one in Hawaii and it was the same thing. It was frozen bullets of tuna. So... Um, there's nothing wrong with being frozen, but there is something wrong with being old. So, <laughs> I guess that leaves both of us out of the mix. Then. <laughs> uh, okay, so now we've got our tuna. Are you going to make a poke bowl out of it if it's perfect? Or? If it's perfect, I'm just going to make it very simple. Probably uh, one of my favorite things is to do toasted sesame seed, toasted sesame oil, a dash of yuzu, and that's it. Uh-huh. Just toss it really nicely. I'm, I don't want to put too much stuff in it because I don't want to cover the fish. But I also don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to just raw slice tuna. Well, let's face it. A lot of what ahi is, is not about the flavor of the fish when it's raw like that. It's about the texture, right? It's Correct. Of, yeah. Correct. It's like you have this gorgeous texture of a piece of meat that just melts in your mouth, but it's not mushy. It's the, it's, it still has a little give to it. And that's what's... All right. Now let's tuna. do it for Pamela because... Uh, 
I think you're coming around to sushi, but you did, for, for years you were never a raw fish person. Uh, let's cook some ahi for her. Okay. Um, you hate to cook it too much. <laughs> well, that, that kind of meat, is, it's just like beef tenderloin. You're not going to eat a beef tenderloin well down. I mean, it's kind of like, don't bother eat beef tenderloin if you're going to eat it well down. Eat something or else. Or have albacore if you're going to... Yeah. yeah. Why spend the money? <laughs> don't, don't take the... It's a piece of meat that is meant to be uh, not cooked all the way. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I would say a good searing on it is very important. Uh, How do you do that? So a good searing is make sure the pan is hot. Any good searing for me, it starts with you put the pan on the fire, you turn on the fire, and you walk away. Don't worry about this pan. Let it get hot. Now, don't use a cheap Teflon pan because that's going to break down the pan, and that's not a good idea. You need to have a heavy bottom pan. Cast iron is a good pan. Or heavy stainless steel um, bottom pan. Make sure that pan gets hot. So that's about the time it takes you to make a cocktail, for example. So you go make yourself <laughs> oh, a cocktail. Good word of advice. Back, the pan is hot. Maybe not quite that hot, but you know what I'm saying. All Very right, hot. so what are we putting on our fish? Olive so, oil, vegetable oil? Yes, on the, on the uh, fish, I put vegetable oil. I try not to put olive oil because it's going to be seared. And salt, and that's it. That's all I do on the fish. I don't put anything else. Mainly because any spice you're going to add to that... It's going to burn because you're trying to sear the fish. The searing is supposed to be creating a beautiful crust on the outside, keeping the inside raw. However, I'm also a big fan of making sure that there's a little heat that goes through the fish so the, in, the middle of the fish is not bone cold. Most of the time, that fish is going to come right out of the fridge. You're not going to leave it on the counter for three hours going, oh, I'm going to make him room. <laughs> no, you don't <laughs> want to do recommendation. that. Yeah. So, you know, the most is going to be outside is 15 minutes. The inside of that steak is not going to be very hot. So when you're it's searing... It's still raw. I mean, let's be yeah, clear. It is very raw People and it's very cold. People say they don't love raw tuna and then they want a seared rare tuna steak. Well, it's raw in the middle. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Rare is raw in the middle. Yeah. It's not, there is no, no, no chance about that. However, when you're searing your tuna, you sear it really well on very high heat and very fast... If you cover, if you turn off the heat and cover your pan for about one minute, it will allow the fish to keep cooking, number one. But more importantly, the heat is staying inside and it's acting like an oven now. And it will warm up the inside slightly of your meat. Now, what are, are we talking about a half inch thick or an inch thick? We're talking about, about an inch thick. One inch thick. Okay. You don't really want, if you can, don't make your tuna too thin because you're trying to get it rare on the outside. I mean, uh, crispy on the outside. You still want the flavor of the raw inside. This is a gorgeous flavor of a mix of crispy on the outside, hot, and then chill on the inside, um, and raw. So you want to have that combination. I think that's what makes ai tuna so beautiful when it's sealed properly. I mean, I've had it in many different places, I'm sure like you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and some places it doesn't taste as good, but when it's done perfectly, it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And you know it when you have it good. Right. And so you simply, now you've got it seared. Let's say you have a little chunk uh, that's the size of a mm, baseball's too big, half a baseball. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now we've got it seared. Uh-huh. So um, then we want to pull it off. And typically I like to slice it before I send it to the table because Absolutely. sometimes it has a little sinew left right. uh, in the belly side. Absolutely. I would slice it right after it comes out of the pan, leave it for one minute, and then slice it. 
in an angle. Usually it's never straight down, it's always in an angle. And Tuna will show you all the veins of the meat. They will show you the way the meat runs. You always want to cut through that. You don't want to cut with that, you want to cut through that. So if the lines are going north-south, you want to cut east-west. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Always like any piece of meat. Yeah, across the grain. It's a much better piece of meat to eat in the end. It makes the meat much more tender and easier and palatable. And I always like to have a little combination sauce, a little dipping sauce kind of idea on the side, not on top of the tuna, but on the side. And it could go from a chermoula idea, which is basically... Let's just say you're making a niswa salad. Maybe you go with chermoula. Correct. Or if you're making... uh, Asian salad... Yeah, so you, you, I would do like a toasted sesame, soy, soy, maybe you know, a little Chinese mustard, mustard, yeah, mustard wasabi. wasabi. Put that on the side, and then some pickled ginger on the side as well, because that's always a three different great combination. But that's how I would eat my tuna. Mm, sounds so delicious, Pamela. Uh, I feel empowered are you inspired? now. Inspired? Yes, I just uh, need to be brave enough to keep the searing time short on each side. Yeah. I think that's. You want yeah, to I mean, tell everyone, uh, you want to plug your favorite fish market? Yes, please. Fresh Fish in Ballard on 80th and 24th, but Margaret retired and I'm heartbroken. Itchy. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah. I've been going to, uh, well, I've always gone to Mutual when I'm in that part of town, but I've been going to the Wild Salmon Fish Market at uh, Fisherman's Tremble. That's a fun little trip because you get to eat at one of the restaurants there, right. walk the docks with all the boats. It is a great store. Yeah. Great store. Lovely. And they sell my spice rubs. Yes. Good combination. Well, All right. In that case, uh, Pamela, do you want to uh, tell us what's coming up next? Uh, special edition of Rub with Love, Tasty Trivia, right, dedicated to moms. Dedicated All to right. moms. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Show, 97.3 FM. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say, mother. All right. We're back. It's time for Rub With Love Tasty Trivia. Rub With Love is a family of spice blends, sauces, and mustards that belong in your pantry. Made right there at my warehouse in Ballard. Most of it, the rubs are. Um, These condiments will help you create distinctive flavor profiles in any dish. Have fun mixing and matching them on your veggies and proteins. You can find Rub With Love locally at Mulbacks when you're buying a petunia for your mother, maybe. Fresh Fish in uh, Crown Hill, Pam's favorite, and our friends at the Midwest in the Midwest can find Rub With Love at Heinen's stores. Of course, they're available at most grocery stores. Petunia? Online. Really? You don't like petunias? Peonies. <laughs> peonies is what I would buy. Yeah, Either step way. up to the peony. Yeah. Either way. It's mom. Mom, after all. My mom likes petunias. Um, Gert, you know, my mother's middle name is Gert. If she's watching right now, she'll kill me for saying that. But Gertrude is my mother's middle name. So my dad used to always call her Gert. She hated it. Yeah, that's not yeah. a very... Uh... Yeah. Pam, do you want to tell us how to play the game and uh, who's going to win today and what are prizes? The five contestants are each going to get five questions related to mothers. But since you're all part of the company, the prize of the spicy Tokyo rub is going to go to our audience members. Whoa! Yay! That's good on tuna. <laughs> That's why we're doing it. We're keeping with the tuna theme. And we're starting with Terry Rotoro. I'm ready. I know. Mom. Born ready. 
In most of the world's languages, the word for mother begins with the letter M. Correct. Crazy. But now we want you to name a lettuce that begins with the letter M. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a little circular route there somewhere. Uh, it reminds me of paper. From your garden, something green and leafy. Mosh. Uh, paper oh, mache. Mosh. Mosh. Mosh would be oh, good. I was like, I was confused by that. Did you get it? Thank you. Did you get my clue? I should have had the lifeline back here. <laughs> Mosh, of course I should know this. Manoa, mesclun, miner's lettuce, mizuna, mustard greens. So there was only one. The okay. po- were any of the possibilities. Forgot to say, these questions were given to us by our beloved Becky Guzak. Oh, really? Yeah, she submitted them to help me. Number two, in what South American country is Mother's Day celebrated with a whole week of dinner, lunches, and parties? I'm going to say... Starts with a P. Peru. <laughs> Yay! How's that? No, you didn't have to say that. I was trying to think of Lima. Yeah. I think. Number three, what <laughs> is a mother of vinegar? It's the starter to the vinegar, which is basically a bacteria, like a jello bacteria that you have. Formed, then you put that with your wine. What and flavor jello do you use for that? <laughs> turns that? Turns that into a vinegar. Yes, that was a beautiful answer. A cluster of bacteria that converts alcohol to vinegar. That you find in strawberry jello. <laughs> nice it looks job. like jello when you look at it. True or false? Women pregnant with boys get nauseous more easily. <laughs> I think that's wrong. Any would know. It's definitely not true. No, I would say not true either. It's true. No, I think that's wrong. <laughs> pregnant women Wait, carrying how do you know that? Pregnant women carrying boys are measurably more sensitive to disgust. They have a higher disgust sensitivity to compared to mothers carrying daughters in the disgust, first Disgust, yes, but I wouldn't say nausea. Yeah, you said you said nausea. That's different. <laughs> and finally, what dish did your mom make you that was your comfort food? Pot-au-feu. Oh. Would you tell the audience quickly what that Pot-au-feu is? Pot-au-feu is a boiled uh, neck or tail uh, of the beef. That It's boiled with vegetable, ca- uh, potato, carrots, onion, cabbage, turnips. And it's served um, on a platter with the meat on one side, the vegetable on the other side, garnished with uh, sea salt, like flake salt, uh, cornichon, and Dijon mustard. And the broth is turned into a boiling before that. Boil the broth, put in some vermicelli pasta in there, make that into mm. a soup, and that's oh, your first course. I feel course. comforted. Wow. Thank you, Mom. On to yeah. Annie Elmore, please. Right. What do moms Wait, is want? that a point? Annie is the <laughs> chef here at the hot stove, by the way. You, Just... Yeah, you got a point for that. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was easy. Can that be my five, my so five three, questions? Annie, three out of five. Oh, that's the number to beat. Wow. What do moms want most for Mother's Day? <laughs> Time to herself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're giving that to you. Uh, the, but what Becky said, 47% of moms say having a meal with their families is a gift they want most for Mother's Day. But there's 53% <laughs> of the rest of us. I think those moms are lying. <laughs> um, mother's Ruin. Uh, is the other name for which liquor? Mother's the chance, uh, the choices would be rum, whiskey, or gin. 
Rum? Gin. Okay. Definitely not whiskey. I Tom. thought whiskey made you crazy. <laughs> it does. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to avoid that answer. <laughs> uh, which of the following cakes is often made to celebrate Mother's Day or Mothering Sunday, as is called in the United Kingdom? A simmel cake, a sponge cake, or a tipsy cake? Tipsy cake? It would be the simmel cake, <laughs> a type of dried fruit cake that contains layers and topping of marzipan. True or false? Now remember, this is in England. <laughs> hey, they drink there. Uh, brunch is the most popular dining option for Mother's Day. True or false? Yes. True. Absolutely. False. It's dinner. <laughs> no. <laughs> what? I'm gonna, you don't want to start drinking out Only to get, at the beginning of the day? 24% order brunch. And he's too drunk by dinner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Number five. What dish did your mom make for you that was your comfort food? Mm, banana fritters. Whoa. Not the American kind, though. But it's like tempura bananas. Yes. What kind of yeah. sauce? Coconut milk and uh, toasted um, peanut. And did you eat them hot then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Terry, are you too mm. tied? No, oh. she's, she's only at two. <laughs> okay. Annie, what's going on here? She had a mimosa before she came <laughs> Mr. Douglas, from the nursery, nursery rhyme, Old Mother Hubbard, what did she go to the cupboard for? The Old room. Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard. For cheese and whey. <laughs> no, to get the cheese bowl. <laughs> to, to get her poor dog a bone. Oh, <laughs> nice job. To get a what? To get her poor dog a bone. Oh, get it. Number two, who is the mother of invention? Frank Zappa. <laughs> Necessity. The author of this proverb is unknown. Uh, uh, what was the name of Frank Zappa's band? <laughs> the mothers of invention. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe he was yeah, on to something. Far credit. But still wrong. Still wrong. No. <laughs> Number three, how much milk do blue whale moms produce a day? A thousand pounds. <laughs> 50 gallons of milk per day. That is uh, a fat content between 35 and 50%. Jeez, each amazing. gallon weighs 20 pounds. I'm just saying. <laughs> True <Wow>. or false? <laughs> Isn't that a thousand pounds? Wow. Moms may be more vulnerable to tooth decay. Absolutely. Yes, uh, every it is. mom I've seen is toothless. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you know uh, why? I don't know why. Because when you're pregnant, your teeth are more um, sensitive and easier to get um, cavity. Really? Mm -hmm. I did not know. It messes up your calcium absorption. Yeah, yeah I think it's your calcium balance yeah. that just becomes. Yeah. Number five, what dish did your mom make for you that was your comfort food? Pot roast, just like Terry. The, mm. Mine was, uh, she always made gravy, not the broth. Roasted it all Chuck down roast, into you know, gravy. Roasted into a pot roast. And the winner today is Terry Rodro. Oh. Oh. When was the last time you win, Chef? I, I won with the three. I'm like, you guys, you guys are We are really here. bad. We are really bad. <laughs> oh, wow. Today, our prize that each of the audience members gets a make, rub with love Tokyo rub, which is like a tokarashi rub. Uh, if you're listening to us on... Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. 
Remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and happy Mom's Day. Mother, mother.